2: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in little intense doses from some of the most creative thinkers on earth. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone. We surprise our guests, all accomplished people in their fields with ideas they're not prepared to discuss. And I'm not prepared either. The ideas are a surprise to me too. I'm very, very happy today to be talking with the multi-talented Miss Amanda Palmer or Mrs. Amanda Palmer. She's a (laughs) very, she's a former human statue, a rock star under her own name and with her band, the Dresden Dolls, she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Art of Asking. Amanda's a champion of radical trust and vulnerability. You might call her aggressively vulnerable. She's an inspiration to all of us who are too cool or too shy to ask for what we really need from other people. Welcome to Think Again, Amanda.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, I'm so so glad to have you on. So I have about a million questions for you. I've just read, (laughs) uh, we're not going to have time for a million, but I've just read your book. I've finished it this morning. But I think rather than launching into one of my million questions, I'll ask you, is there anything at this moment that you wish someone would ask you about (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to what they're likely to ask you about?
0: Oh, you know, that's always a really tricky question to ask. I've just had a child, so my brain is spinning on completely new planes of existence and connection. But my guess is anything you ask me is gonna wind up manifesting in an answer that I wanted to give anyway so. well I'm sort of
2: gl- <laughs> I'm sort of glad that you mentioned your child actually because I wanted to ask you about your child I have an eight-year-old son so I have been through some of the parenting things. But I didn't want to ask you in case everyone on the internet would suddenly be like, oh my God, the moment that a female guest comes on, she's being asked about her child.
0: I guess the important question would be, is if I were a guy and I had just had a child, would you ask me the same thing?
2: And the answer is yes, but will the internet believe that? I mean I, I swear it is true. Oh
0: who cares who cares what the internet believes? The the internet believes some insane <laughs> things. Let's not go through yeah. let's not okay. go all into right. what the internet so, believes. Alright, well so yeah, <laughs>
2: screw the internet. What I wanted to ask you was standing where you're standing now, like what is the Palmer slash Gaiman philosophy of child rearing?
0: Well <laughs> You know, Neil and I are two individual people, so I can't speak for him. I can I can kind of only speak for me. Oh, I th-
2: sure. I just thought that you guys might have tried to get a plan together.
0: Oh, okay. No, we have no plan. <laughs> no plan. That's the plan. That's the plan is no plan. This actually drives Neil totally crazy. But my plan is always as much supportive framework and as little planning as possible. I mean, Neil and I—I I can just launch into the argument slash deep marital child discussion that we were having last night because Neil's trying <laughs> to start a novel right now, and what he desperately wants right now is prediction and routine. Okay, which means he wants to be in one place, you know, basically knowing what's going to happen every day, da, da 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 da, so he can write. I, on the other hand, am in like this crazy, Patreon-fueled, making art when I feel like it, running into studios, improv with my child, kind of trying to not plan more than a day ahead of time. Now, I have a bad, not I would say bad track record, but I I have a reputation in our marriage (laughs) (laughs) of never wanting to commit to anything. And You know, I see that as a kind of a feature, not a bug. I think if you plan too hard, you cannot respond to the needs of the moment. Right. And I kind of feel the same way about the child. It's like if you plan too much, you can't respond to what's happening.
2: Creatively, does that work for you to just kind of make art and do your stuff whenever the baby happens to be sleeping or, you know, in between feedings? Is that all flowing for you
3: okay?
0: yeah. I'm actually putting out a song today, Hmm. as we speak, that I wrote last week. It's an 11-minute song. (laughs) I wrote it in my friend Jason Webley's houseboat, where I was staying, because Jason's his godfather, and we were staying there. You know, we had to engineer it. So we also recorded it on Jason's piano in his houseboat, and we had to plan the takes (laughs) between, like, baby noises. It was insane. <laughs> but it but it was awesome because it was such a wonderful, organic way to work because there I was like at my friend's house and it was like, OK, well, if he's up for the next hour, we can't do takes. So let's just make food and, you know, look at Donald Trump clips on the Internet and wait for, you know, wait for the next moment to come. Yeah. And I love making art that way. <laughs> it's so much more fun than sitting down with a record label and saying, okay, you know, in like spring of 2017, these songs might see the light of day.
2: What do you think about editing? I'm really curious, like, you know, (laughs) how much do you value uh, or how important is it to you to like filter or edit in that way?
0: It's incredibly valuable. And I also pick and choose my moments. Okay. If you look at my body of work and you sort of place it on a scale from zero to a hundred, with zero being the drunken blog <laughs> that was twenty five hundred words, that is riddled with typos, it's just complete mouth diarrhea, written in a in a fit of passion, and I pressed send, and that's zero. Right, right. <laughs> and then a hundred is my last record. Four years in the planning beautifully produced, right. where every second of audio has been thought out. I think both of those things have a great place in my body of work. As crazy as it may sound, I wouldn't value one over the other, sure. even though one took me 45 minutes to write and one took me four years to to produce. I think in order to feel like a real, authentic artist, I have to say those things both have their place in the canon. It's so funny that you should mention editing, because this song that I'm putting out today, it's called A Mother's Confession. It's a one-take piano and vocal song. It's an 11-minute take. Right. It's a really literal description of what my last few months have been like. But it has all of these lies in it, <laughs> because I had to lie about a lot of things to make the song work.
2: That's one of the fun things about making art, isn't it? That, like, only you know where the lies are.
0: Well, okay, except I thought that it would be a really fun exercise <laughs> to write a document of footnotes <laughs> so about all of the lies in the, the lies. song. Okay. So I wrote, I think it's like an 8,000-word essay of Just footnotes. There's 69 footnotes. (laughs) Wow. So this seems like one of those things that's just like art diarrhea, where I write this 11-minute song, and then I write in a feverish last few 48 hours, I write this 8,000-word document that's going to be sent out as a PDF to all of my patrons and up on the internet so that the public can read it. But even then... I had to edit. Sure. I sent it to two different people who copy edited it, I sent it to Jason who suggested changes. So even then, like even at my most diuretic, <laughs> I'm still <laughs> employing an editor, but it's an editor in a context and it's an editor in a framework. Sure. You know, my growth as an artist has been about finding where is the editing volume knob? Is, am I editing at a 10 or am I editing at a 2? And is this thing ready enough to go out?
2: Well, I think we ought to move on to the second part of the podcast in which you and I are in the same boat in that we are encountering these ideas. These are interviews from Big Think's video content. They're a surprise to me. And are you ready to take a look at them? Yeah. All right, cool. So let's see what the first one is. Okay, so this one is by Michael Schrage. The U.S. government wants Apple to unlock its iPhone, so do the world's authoritarian regimes is the name of this clip. And this fellow, Michael Schrage, is a research fellow at the MIT Center for Digital Business.
3: There's a very famous phrase in the legal community, hard cases make bad law and the circumstances that Apple and the FBI and the Justice Department find themselves in certainly not by design it's a horrible tragedy that led to it but this is a wonderful example of a very hard case Apple has designed their devices so that people can protect their information and now a federal judge has ordered Apple to help crack the phone and gain access to that information. And Apple, in a a very interesting letter from its CEO, Tim Cook, has said, we are rejecting the judge's order to help crack this. Why? By exceeding to the judge's request and the FBI's request, a message would be sent to people all over the world, China, Europe, Latin America, the U.S., that if a judge says, that thing that you've encrypted on your device? we want access to it, it would basically mean you have no privacy. And let's be very blunt here, Chinese and Russian rule of law standards are different than American or British or German rule of law standards. The reality is this is one of those circumstances where there is no good answer. And whatever answer is chosen is the wrong one.
0: Feel basically the way he feels, which is how would we feel as a society if this guy had documents in his closet and we would probably all go, Oh, yeah, no, that's okay. The cops can go in there. You know, killed a bunch of people. If you kill a bunch of people, your closet's no longer private. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, Um, right. And so, why is a closet different from an iPhone? Exactly. That's the riddle of the day. On the other hand, do we have a right to privacy? It's even just the emotional feeling that if we're taking a note on our iPhone and it's private, that we don't have to think twice. Sure.
2: I mean, I th- but I think we do have a right to privacy and it's protected in the Constitution. The question are, is sort of what are the limits of that and like when, as you said, when do we... Forgo that right to privacy.
0: Well, I think we forgo that right to privacy when we fucking shoot somebody. <laughs> right, right, I, exactly. I think that's you're you're trading off there. The minute you shoot somebody, your privacy is no longer granted. But you know, clearly, the way a closet is not like an iPhone, is that the government cannot kind of vaguely sort of spy on your closet. Right, they have to come to your front door. But I think there's three separate issues here. And as far as, you know, this discussion of the San Bernardino shooter goes, it, it sounds like there's two different issues and they should be separated. One is, you know, should we be allowed to get into this guy's iPhone? I would say yes. Should Apple create a situation, a internationally worldwide privacy throttling situation where all of a sudden there's code out there? that means that the world is going to get a whole lot worse for a lot of people? No. (laughs) Right. So how do we, you know, if those things are mutually exclusive... Yeah, right. He's right. We're just screwed. Right. No, I
2: totally (laughs) agree. I mean, the digital space creates, you know, some different challenges in that sense, but...
0: And can we maybe put this in a way larger context? Sure. Let's do that. And remember that we as a species have been around for a long time. I mean, not compared to some other species, but let's just say it's a long time. Many, 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 many tens of thousands of years. Right. And we've only had, quote-unquote, private property for a very short time.
2: That is true.
0: Our conception of privacy... Is pretty weird. (laughs) You know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this. I was reading Bill Bryson's, one of his latest books at home. And he's got a whole chapter on the invention of the bedroom. Okay. And, you know, speaking of closets and bedrooms and houses, is it possible that we take for granted this thing called a bedroom, which is a really modern idea? And up until recently, the idea that you had a room and a bed that was yours, that you exclusively slept in, is so startlingly new in the course of the length of human history. It's crazy. And it was really not long ago where the bulk of human beings were all huddled together in one bed and before that kind of all in one place. Right. When you think about it that way, we're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've gotten so isolated and so private so fast in terms of what we will and won't share with each other. And, you know, if you look at the pox on modern society and the fact that we're all anxious, freaked out and depressed and simultaneously screaming at the top of our lungs that we demand our privacy, is it possible that those things are connected? Yeah. You know, not that that gives us an answer to the San Bernardino case, but it does do a, you know, long focus shot of the earth as we know it. And I do think it's important to prize privacy. But on the other hand, is it the end all be all and at, at what cost?
2: Well, like in your, you know, in your work, and you talk about this a lot in the book and your life, I mean, you are someone that is constantly pushing those boundaries in terms of personal space you had people signing your body at shows and you know you couch surf while you're on tour in the homes of fans around the world and there's a really powerful message in all that which you've totally just articulated I wondered as I was reading that though about also the question of temperament like putting aside you know what is societally valued in terms of privacy, just different types of people. And whether you ever run up against the thing of like, well, maybe this is to a certain extent, Amanda Palmer, that like, I can dial it up to a 10 in terms of my personal space, but other people, you know, it's like actually traumatic for them to step outside of those boundaries. I mean, or do you just believe it's like universal? You know, everyone should forego
0: those boundaries? Oh, no. I mean, I think we're all different. I mean, I do think if you look at what makes people fearful, embarrassed, or anxious, a lot of it isn't natural. I mean, a lot of it isn't stuff that right. we're born with. It's stuff that we learn and it's reactions to the environment around us. And privacy and exposition and extroversion and all of these things that we're talking about are very different in different societies, sure. take across section of people from New England versus L.A. versus Finland versus tribes with no electricity in Papua New Guinea. And you're going to get a very different right. <laughs> different idea of what normal is depending on, you know, depending on whether that's a culture where you show your boobs all the time and they're not sexualized or it's right. a total taboo. And yes, some of that is also personality. And in any given tribe or culture, you're going to have... Your people who are a little more performative and your people who are a little more on the shy side. But that's going to be within the context of that culture. And our culture happens to have a certain set of rules. I think we shouldn't take them for granted at all. And
2: on that note, let's, uh, I think, let's move on to the next one. Let's see what we have to watch next. This is critic A.O. Scott from the New York Times, and it is called Oscars Host Chris Rock Must Take On Himself
1: before taking on the film industry. I think that the Academy is, has put themselves into a very uncomfortable position and they deserve all of the the discomfort that they're experiencing. But you know, the question of the broadcast itself is an interesting one because Chris Rock as host and of course he was put in place as host before the nominations came out and for the the uh, the protests against them, no matter what he does, and I'm, I'm sure his jokes will be very pointed and very honest, nonetheless, it can't help but be a kind of window dressing or sort of compensation. Well, see, you know, yeah, we didn't nominate any, any black people, but our host is, is African-American, so it's all fine, right? We're all good. The controversy over the, over the Oscars and the Oscars-so-white idea has much more to do with the film industry. The power in the film industry resides with white men whose perspectives, it's not that any of them are individually necessarily racist or bigoted, um, but there's a, a collective myopia that comes in. And so you're a, you're a middle-aged white guy and you see a young white guy and you're like, oh yeah, let's give that kid a break. And there are women and there are people of color who are, who are just as talented, whose work can be just as strong, but you don't see them.
2: I'm so glad that we're talking about this stuff now, but why are we talking about this stuff now? It's not as if it's new. It's not as if sort of racism was suddenly discovered in 2016. I'm just wondering, like, why this has all—I mean, and you know, certainly there are the shootings this year and Black Lives Matter. But just, like, why it is that America seems to be ready to talk about this stuff in a different way when none of this is, is really new.
0: First of all, I agree with you. I think it's awesome that this conversation is happening. And I think, why does any moment in time happen? It's a combination of galvanizing forces, I think. In the case of this and Oscar So White and Black Lives Matter, it's at the sort of intersection of bad shit happening and people having a voice on social media and having sort of experimented with that voice and found itself through social media and add the ingredient of systemic racism forever in the States. And, right, you know, and...
2: That's a good point. Actually, hashtags shouldn't be overlooked because both of these Black Lives Matter and Oscars So White were Twitter hashtags. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And I, I mean, it's the it's the combination of all that stuff is people realizing, you know, it's it's everything. It's Occupy. It's like, what can we do now? And people have sort of been looking around going like, okay, what can we do now? Our country is still fucked. What can we do now? Right. You know, there's a lot of people in this country figuring out how to get shit done and figuring out how to talk to each other and figuring out how to create change feels overwhelming. So it's no wonder that we course to, you know, to something like a hashtag, even if it's oversimplified, because it's so hard to affect change and everyone feels so disaffected. You know, I, for one, I know when Occupy happened, in the wake of 9-11 to finally see something like Occupy take shape, I was so thrilled and then so angry that it sort of didn't get off the ground and it couldn't really quite get quite organized because it didn't really quite have a leader and it didn't really quite have a mission that everyone could sort of agree on. And, you know, and yet Occupy had its use because at least... The whole country could look at something and say, we're upset and change is possible.
2: Right. And you know what I want to say about that? I think what's so interesting is that, like, as soon as those impulses are expressed, you have the the powers that be, the vested interests kind of clamping down and basically saying, you guys don't have the expertise to be doing this stuff. You know, you don't know what you're doing. You know, that's the message that comes out, you know, about Occupy. That's the message that right. comes out about Bernie Sanders, you know, I've been reading a a lot lately about the founding fathers and the founding of the United States and like, they had no idea what they were doing and they were getting exactly the same message from England. England was like, yeah, you know, you you guys, you you bunch of clowns, you know, trying to start a country.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And now we look at that as the word of God. (coughs) Right. It's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's
2: like, I feel like if anyone's gonna dismantle or repair any of this stuff, it's gonna be in a kind of amateur improvised kind of way that it has to be well
0: and no one has no one has dismantled this united states you know it's always about this moment this context right it's always new it's always unique and it's always and it's always different you know and right now you've got this collision of factors in the states that's never existed before will never exist again And that's the important thing to remember. As human beings, we all have this flaw, which is to think that there is a truth and there is a way and there's a right way of doing things. And it's just bullshit. You know, the right way of doing things in 1985 was definitely not the way to do things in 1776, is not the way to do things in 2016. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I I think it comes down to professional interests and credentials. I think, like, there's this sense that some people are the professionals.
0: Sure, but I think the question on everyone's mind now, especially with the election, is if these people are the professionals, we're in trouble.
2: (laughs) Indeed, yeah, no, indeed.
0: Because look where it's gotten us. We can't fuck around anymore. We've got a dying planet. That's right. If these are the professionals and this is what has happened... We can't trust the professionals. Which is why you see the popularity of Donald Trump and the popularity of Bernie Sanders because right. they're calling out the system as well.
2: What do you what do you think about uh, Bernie?
0: I'm a huge fan. I just did it <laughs> I just did a benefit in Santa Fe to to get the vote out. Okay. And I mean I think he's a really authentic person. Yeah. I I have a lot of hope that he'll get the nomination and the election and that we will collectively as a country start moving the Titanic waste ship in the right direction before it's too late.
2: You know, I wanna believe that and I, I admit to a certain amount of fear that if he becomes president it polarizes the government, it leads to standstill, you know, but then again, I guess when you're in a situation like we're in, it's kinda of hard for things to get worse in that regard.
0: No, I think it is time for a radical moment, otherwise we we sink.
2: All right. On that uplifting note, <laughs> let's uh let's take a look at video number three, which is Andrew Keane, who is an author of a book called The Internet is Not the Answer. It's called The Internet Encourages a Pre-Copernican Understanding of the Universe. let well, us uh, I'm actually very interested to hear what you think about this. So let's take a minute and watch this.
4: The contemporary Internet is based on a fundamental lie. We all are told that it's social. We're all told that it allows connectivity, allows us to create community. But the reverse is actually true. It's atomizing us. It's not creating real community. It's actually separating us from people of different opinions, of different cultures. It's increasingly an echo chamber effect where we're only ever connected with people who agree with us in the first place. But even more troubling, these social networks aren't really social. They're platforms for the self. They're platforms for us to build brands. The clearest manifestation of this is our obsession with the selfie. The selfie becomes the cultural form of the internet. Wherever we go, we picture ourselves in front of mausoleums, in front, as they say in the book, in front of people committing suicide, at Auschwitz, at every imaginable place. In spite of all the bad taste associated with it, we are, in our minds at least, our deluded minds, the center of our universe. I argue, again, in terms of progress, that we've gone back to a a pre-Copernican understanding of the universe, where everything revolves around us. There's nothing social about that.
2: Now, first of all, before we get into this, in the spirit of transparency, I should say that something unprecedented has happened, which is that my producers, of whom three choose these videos. One of them has chosen a video that I actually saw before and discussed with a guest on this show, and I think it was with A.O. Scott. However, I am so sure that your take on it is going to be radically different from A.O. Scott's, so take us away, Amanda <laughs>
0: Uh Well, some might expect me to not agree with this guy. I completely agree. His attitude's a little grumpy. But I really, um, I'm really on board with that. The internet as a tool is so potentially progressive and connecting and incredible and amazing. But we fumbling, bumbling humans have not managed to harness it correctly. And you know, who could blame us? We're all neurotic and anxious and fucked up. And of course, it's gonna bring out the dark side right. in in many of us. And so you think
2: wait, do you think sort of more people fuck it up than don't?
0: Well, I don't think it's fair to say people fuck it up. I mean I think it's sort of like space abhors a vacuum and and we've this new tool. It is so new and it is so thrilling. Especially as one who grew up with no internet and no computers, really. Right. Um Me too. certainly no networked computers. It's so thrilling to go, oh, my God, the, the universe is in my, my telephone. You know, I can point it to the sky and know it where the stars are. <laughs> I can talk to anyone across the planet at any time of day and share media and thoughts and feelings. And, oh, my God, this is just sci-fi, incredible, advanced, next-level human ingenuity at its best. But <laughs> right. But then you get onto the Internet and you're looking at Cats on skateboards. And you're like, (laughs) a lot of
2: of cats on skateboards.
0: (laughs) And, you know, I think of the internet a lot like cigarettes. (laughs) You look back at the way people were social smoking in the 30s, 40s, whatever. Right. No one questioned it. Everybody did it. It was in every single social space on an airplane, in a restaurant, at the family dinner table, cigarettes, cigarettes. Everyone was just doing it. And they probably had an inkling that it was bad for them-ish.
2: Right, in spite (laughs) of the advertisements that were like extra healthful cigarette from Charles.
0: Right, yes, (laughs) right. These cigarettes will lower your heart rate. These cigarettes will help with your digestion. These cigarettes... But, I mean, you couldn't be a human being smoking three packs a day and and getting to the end of the day and, like, having your smokers cough and going, like, maybe (laughs) they're not good for me. I don't know, but they're so tasty. And now we look back at that and we think you know how could you guys not have known right and i have the feeling that 50 years from now if we progress as a society and i am very optimistic and i believe that we will i think we will look back at our internet usage of 2016 and laugh dismally the kind <laughs> of the same way we look back at oh you know an airplane filled with secondhand smoke and a bunch of babies in whatever 1965
2: yeah so how do you think the way we use the Internet would ideally change in your optimistic vision of the future? How should we be using it? How will we use it?
0: You know, that's a huge question. Okay, I mean, you can start I don't <laughs> okay. want to say I have, mean, the, an- I anywhere, say yeah. I have the answer, but yeah. but I know a few of the ingredients that would need to go into making the Internet serve us better. The thing I worry most with the Internet, at the end of the day, the Internet is basically just going to be owned by Disney World yeah, slash yeah, yeah. Google, slash sure. Facebook, like everything. and else, there's not yeah. going to be an internet. You know, there is going to be a exponential version of Facebook where everything is commercialized. Everything is monetized. And we're really missing out if we do that sure you know i don't want to be in my 70s and telling my grandchildren i remember when the internet was just crazy (laughs) and you could just go on it and people had these things called websites which was just basically anything you could think up and you could just put it on the internet and i don't want to see these wide-eyed kids be like wow that sounds amazing
2: it it should it should come down to a cultural shift in how we use it not a structural shift.
0: Well, I don't know. We This needs to be a three-way with me, you, and <laughs> Mornier, where we talk about the design of the internet and, right. and, and, and why it's taking us down into the black hole. But, you know, I really do believe that we will learn how to use the internet as more authentic users. You know, I feel like part of my job as public person slash rock star slash social media user slash fellow at the Harvard Berkman Center, which studies the internet, is I challenge myself to not present my best self on the internet because then it is a conversation instead of an exposition. It's a communion instead of a show. My favorite internet moments by far have not been when I have snapped the perfect selfie, but when I have, you know, shared my struggles and felt resonance with my fellow human beings. That's when I feel like the Internet is really powerful. And I don't
2: know why it is that so many folks, and I'll put myself along with them, need to be led. But I do appreciate the work that you're doing, in a sense, giving people permission to be themselves out there.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you.
2: I really enjoyed talking with you today. And uh, thanks so much for being on.
0: Yeah, you bet.
2: And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Our theme music was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. I want to thank everybody. I do this almost every week, but I want to thank everybody again who has taken the time to rate or review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. And if you haven't done so, I urge you to please take a minute and and do that because it makes a major difference in terms of how visible the show is to other people. We'll be back next week with the amazing Maria Popova of Brain Pickings. I'll see you then.